0: This week's episode is dedicated to Monica Marie. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 198. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, Valentine's Day this week, and of course, as expected, love is in the air and completely impossible to flee from. Each year we find ourselves waiting for this vast, dark shadow to pass over the land, watching as it swiftly falls upon our world, while cackling Cupid catches his crimson comforter over our heads, trapping each and every one of us, gasping and writhing underneath his stuffy, infinite sheets, forcing us to choke in through our flailing nostrils, his hot, nauseating, fruit-fragranced flatulations, silent but deadly, cherubic but pervasive, tart. But not without a pensive hint of curry. Yep, trapped under the sheets of February 14th, that little bastard baby with the bow pulled it off yet again. The old Bolivian bar mitzvah, the Baghdad Balloon, the Dutch oven, the old Valentine ventilation veto, the Seraphim steamer, the Pixie Asphyxie, Puttering Puck's buttery duck, the fairy godsmother. Old Cupid's squirt yurt, Little Winged Bambini's Tortellini puzzanini, The Hobgoblin's Honk and Hold Up, The Tabernacle, The Curry Casserole, The Midsummer Night's Dream, The Wigwama Trauma, The SBD TP, Under the Old Brown Big Top With the Ringling Smothers and barnum and Gravy, Area 52, The Second Coming of Christ, The Old Fashion.
1: I see the smokestack lightning
0: Oh, there's more. That old cotton polyester greenhouse trapping in dangerous levels of CO poot, like soggy cumulus clouds, those cataclysmic linens, those cataclinens rain down upon us. Judgment de vey. the end is nigh, as overhead seven trumpets release into the night, squeaking at first like small frogs underfoot in the mud, but then rising up like hot chunky biscuits in the air, thickening like steaming loaves in the wind. They linger like Ling wraiths, searching the grove-tops of the elven kings, the stone halls of the dwarven lords, the horse-trodden byways of mortal men, for that thing which in the darkness binds them binds beneath St. Valentine's sheets, stooping in the stifling black, breathing through our mouths, cursing all nougat-filled confections and bouquets of pretty red and pink flora, cursing our loneliness and general insecurity while the pigeon child Archer snickers and seeps, filling the air with laughter and love. Yeah, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. So yeah, we're serving up the lovey dovey Drabble style this week. And then stick around after our feature story for the finalists in the categories of Best Drabble, Best Feature Story, and Best Episode Artist in the 2010 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards, currently going on in the Drabblecast discussion forums. For now, though, it's 100-word story time. This week's Drabble is called Mixed Martial Hearts, and it comes to us from Owen Diamond. Owen's an entry-level electrical construction worker who lives in beautiful Prospect, Nova Scotia with his wife, his son, and a murder of cats. He goes by Domitian on the Drabblecast forums, and he promises not to be the author of any more drunken forum twabbles. His work has appeared in Lucky Comics No. 1 from Halifax. Also, if you're listening to our enhanced feed, you'll see special artwork for this Drabble, done by Owen's brother, Peter. Peter's a professional illustrator in Vienna, Austria, and he does illustration for clients in editorial fiction and music. In addition, he has a blog where he tells some of the stories behind some of his works and gives the occasional peek into his process. He invites you to check it out at peterdiamond.ca. The Drabble's read to you by Michelle Rostuccia. Michelle pursues various podcast and fiction-related endeavors between taking care of her monster toddler and, yeah. That's pretty much enough to take care of her time. Check out her regular podcast gig at PendragonVariety.com. Standing in the cage in front of a packed stadium, getting ready to break the man you love in half
1: in front of thousands of people is a hell of a rush. The fight starts and we meet in the middle. He tries to strike
0: with me but two solid counters later, he steps back. I'll tell him how I feel when I visit him in the hospital. For now, I use a double to slam him down, mounting him before he gets his wind back. While breaking his eye socket, I wonder what kind of flowers he might like. Aw, a couple that plays together stays together. Staying together in this day and age with our social networking and texting and instant messaging is a whole different situation than it used to be. The same technology that allows us to feel close when we're far apart can also sometimes make us feel far apart when we're close. Convenience can be overrated. This week's story looks into a world that holds a mirror to our own. A world that communicates and interacts using message-in-a-bottle pneumatic tube technology. You know, those little capsules you put your money into in the drive-through banks? Weird concept, I know, but this is the Drabblecast. We bring you Love in the Pneumatic Tube Era by Jessica Grant. Miss Grant is the author of the novel Come Thou Tortoise and the story collection Making Light of Tragedy. Come Thou Tortoise won the 2009 Winterset Award, the 2009 Amazon.com First Novel Award, and the Evergreen Award. Making Light of Tragedy includes a story that won both the Western Magazine Award for Fiction and the Journey Prize. Miss Grant lives in St. John's, Newfoundland. The story is read to you by Kate Baker, a voice you're no doubt familiar with if you're into audio fiction podcasts. Kate's a writer, musician, and voice actress living on the East Coast. She's the podcast director of Clark's World Magazine and an all-around pretty swell dame. Check her out at nidream.com. That's A N A E dream.com. So, without further ado, we bring you Love in the Pneumatic Tube Era by Jessica Grant.
1: We bat our eyes more than everyone else. We are more batty. We love our parents more than they love us and more than other people love their parents. We play piano Well, one of us plays and one of us puts her hands on top of the others while he plays, like a blind person. We say each other's names more than we need to. We are annoying. We are lovely. We cannot sleep in the same bed. Guess we can. We thought we couldn't, but we can. We fall asleep and twitch in each other's arms. We dream of chess. We slide like bishops. We gallop like the letter L. We are not trying to get pregnant. We are moving fast. We are catching each other's colds. We can't figure out why everyone else is so calm. We try to explain how we both worked at Jiffy Lubes, at opposite ends of the country, which is how we re-met via Jiffy Lube, and this is where you are supposed to bat your eyes and amazement people. No one bats an eye. Fine. We discover old scrolls that we wrote to each other in high school, back in the early pneumatic tube era. One of us was bossy in her scroll. One of us said, I am disappointed you don't remember that I have a math test fourth period and therefore cannot meet you in the cemetery to smoke a joint. Meet me after. That was back when a PT message took five minutes to get across the city. We shake our heads. Now you can send a living butterfly to Dubai in 10 seconds. We did not lose our virginity to each other, but one of us lost our virginity in the other's house. One of us lost our virginity in a tent while the other roasted a marshmallow nearby. We mourn this. We remember getting high. We remember buying dope in a neighborhood that was over our heads danger-wise. We drove a white Jetta. Well, one of us did the other roadside saddle. You are my knight on a white Jetta. One of us preferred hash to pot. One of us did not prefer. One of us graduated to narcotics. One of us did not. One of us got a tattoo on the inside of her wrist that said, it's cold in here. On the night of our prom, which we did not attend together, one of us played that song that the other was always requesting, the Kate Bush song from the movie, She's Having a Baby. One of us played the grand piano while the other got all dreamy and draped herself across the top and tried to look what is called fetching. The one of us playing the Kate Bush song registered the one draped across the black surface, but his eyes said, I'm concentrating on the chord progression, right. And the other of us rolled over. Can't you see that I'm in love with you? Twenty years later, one of us is having a baby and the other is the father. This after a long and difficult attempt to get reunited in the late pneumatic tube era, when cross-continental vac trains cost a million bucks And there are no more white Jettas. Only trucks operated by large men with difficult-to-get permits issued by Transport Canada. The Jiffy Loops are few and far between. We, the Jiffy Lubers, wait in our respective holes in the ground for a truck to run us over. Oh, for a truck to run us over! We arrange bottles of Pennzoil and pyramids. We wait. We are sentimental about the trucks when they do come. We are pale and deficient in vitamin D and full of longing when we watch them go. How we finally get reunited is this. He sends a PT cylinder with an oil smudged request for a special brand of filter that is really scarce these days and signs his name at the bottom. This request is unscrolled at a Jiffy Lube on the other side of the continent where she reads the signature with batty eyes. Could it be he? She has not seen him since they were 18 and his parents moved west. She sends a scroll back that says only his name, plus a question mark. He replies, yes, plus a question mark. It's me, she says, and signs her name. No question mark. And they are off to the races, exchanging scrolls like there is no tomorrow, catching up. Finally, something to do in their underground holes. They find it unbelievable that they both work in holes. They find it unbelievable that they are both single. They play chess remotely. He teases her because she still doesn't understand how the knight moves, how the L can be sideways or upside down or mirror imaged. What the hell is your knight up to? She yells in her scroll. She is still bossy in her scrolls. He sends her a stick of gum, just like he used to as a peace offering. She sends him her underwear just like she used to. But this time, he does not reply, why are you sending me your underwear? He sends her a song he wrote, transcribed on staff paper. She tries to bang it out on the piano in her basement. She is unsuccessful. She cries alone in her basement because she thought she was happy, protecting her parents and changing oil. But what she is realizing is that she has been missing someone for years and that someone is him. The next day, he sends her a scroll that says, If I could, I would play the Kate Bush song for you again. And this time, I would not concentrate on chord progression, but would break off mid-song to crawl atop the piano that you are so dreamily draped atop of, looking fetching. Your move. She bats her eyes at this. Her move. Does he mean move your rook to H4 or does he mean move yourself across the board to me? Surely he means the latter. But how is a poor JL employee to move rook-wise across the country? VAC trains are out of the question and she does not have a permit to travel above ground. Well... You will recall that myth wherein Odysseus straps himself to the belly of a sheep in order to escape the cyclops he's so conveniently blinded? Well, what is a truck traveling west if not a sheep? And what is Transport Canada if not a blind cyclops? And so the next time a truck drives over her head at the Jiffy Lube, she gets an apprentice Luber, a kid named Cutler, to strap her onto the bottom of the truck Are you sure this is legal? Cutler says. Of course it isn't legal. It is early December and cold. She is wearing her jail coveralls, her white cowboy boots, and a stocking cap. She assures Cutler that the large mud flaps with the picture of the girl looking fetching will protect her from the wind. Cutler looks dubious. Do I look fetching? She asks. The truck pulls out and she is riding its belly. Stones hit her back. She is not used to stones hitting her back. Faster and faster, she is not used to fast. Her eyes get watery. She is rushing away from her jiffy lube. She is rushing away from her parents. Her whole life, she has been lifeguarding her parents who cannot swim and who live beside a pond that every year gets a little bit bigger. Do not think about that. Also, do not think about how Cutler has for many months coveted her job as Chief Luber. Do not think. Do not think. Hours pass. She has no water. Occasionally, there is a puddle. Water is overrated. The strap digs into her ribs. Finally, the truck stops and the trucker debarks to check his tires. Hey! Hey! He catches the sight of a pom-pom dangling above the pavement. Hey! He bends down. Get! Get out from under there! However, she is strapped in so tight that she cannot extract herself and the trucker must cut her loose with an X-Acto knife. She hits the pavement. The trucker bats an eye. He cannot believe he picked up a stowaway in a stocking cap at the Jiffy Lube. What is the world coming to? He buys her a coffee and donut and listens to her story of pianos and chess games and true love and uncrossable distances that might be crossed if, and only if, a kindly trucker will play a sheep and carry her west to her true love's jiffy lube. He looks reluctant to play a sheep, but she is black with soot and road dirt. She is bruised from stones and straps. She is thirsty and half-starved and having already eaten her own maple dip, cannot take her eyes off his. The trucker, whose name is Ham, short for Hamish, buys her another coffee and donut and says, yes, fine. She can ride in the cab with him in the back, which is like a little apartment with a skylight and an ottoman. There's also a black curtain she can hide behind as they go through Transport Canada checkpoints. And so, It is that she is able to arrange herself like the mudflap girl in the furnished back portion of Ham's cab, her feet up on the ottoman. The moon is bright as she scrolls and unscrolls her true love scroll. She reads his message aloud several times, until Ham says over his shoulder, "Okay, enough. She asks if he remembers back in the early pneumatic tube era how everything that came out of a PT gave you a shock. Remember that? And everyone who rode a vac train had staticky hair for days. And how staticky hair became cool, and everyone wanted staticky hair so it looked like they'd been in a vac train even if they couldn't afford one? He says he remembers, and what is her point? Her point is that those shocks have not gone away in terms of the scrolls sent to her by her one true love. She is still all static-electric with excitement when she touches his scroll. Ham says that is more than he needs to know. Then he asks why she is the one making the trip like Odysseus. Why isn't the piano player strapping himself to a sheep and coming to her? Well, that is a good question and one she can answer only by saying that she is black and her true love is white and black always makes the first move. Cam says, I think it's white that makes the first move. She re-scrolls the scroll. That's not how I learned it. And she remembers how, way back in grade seven, when he first taught her chess, she thought he was saying ponds, not "pawns," slow-moving bodies of water. And he said the goal of chess, the whole point of chess is, are you listening, to protect your parents, He meant the king and queen. Right. And one time she even caught him carrying his king and queen around in his back pocket. Outside the truck, snow swirls. She starts to drift off. Ham is saying about an old TV show called Fantasy Island, how that was the start. The start of what, she mumbles. The start of the PT era. Oh, the head guy, Mr. Rourke, the fantasy facilitator, he'd get a request via PT. And then the people who'd sent the request would follow up and go to the island. You had to actually go to the island to have your fantasies realized, in a plane. And a little guy named Tattoo would point and yell, the plane, the plane, and they would get a lay when they arrived. Wow. A lei, a flower necklace. Oh, and their dreams would come true, but you had to physically go, is my point. Thanks, Ham. The truck pulls to a stop at a checkpoint and a slippery Transport Canada Bishop approaches sideways out of the darkness. What is your business, she hears him say but she is safe in her mud flap girl posture concealed behind the black curtain. Ham pulls into her true love's jiffy loop. He, the true love, is underground, a bottle of penzoil platinum at the ready. He notes the big trucker's boots retreating in the direction of the free coffee. He notes the weird straps attached to the interior axle. And then, lo, two white cowboy boots descend from the truck a face bends down that face is wearing a santa claus type hat the pom-pom is dirty it is a familiar face now she for it is a she is sliding down into the underground hole the way someone in a warmer climate might slide into a pool And in that instant, he knows her. She slides down into his underground arms. She wraps her legs around his waist and her arms around his neck. They are fused together in their identical JL uniforms. He backs up. He walks in a wobbly circle, carrying her. And you know how this story ends because we already said at the beginning Remember how you refuse to bat your eyes? Our story is like a new kind of chess game wherein the pieces lurch towards each other in longing. Wherein there is no battle. Wherein there is kissing. Wherein the king and queen are left unguarded. Wherein the only bad guy is a Transport Canada official and he is not so bad. Wherein Ham stands up for us at our wedding. Wherein one of us plays the song from She's Having a Baby. And the other lies atop the piano looking fetching. And finally, being fetched.
0: folks that was our story hope you enjoyed it's all about the journey just ask odysseus at the same time technology sure can make that idea complicated we might need a plane in order to get to fantasy island but had odysseus access to an airplane he'd have called up air ithaca booked a red eye and flown right over calypso that's not to say technology doesn't play its part in the journey be it sheep ship or mysterious bag of winds, but we should be careful that it doesn't replace the journey. Take it from Ham. Sometimes, in order to have your dreams come true, you have to physically go. So why not take a minute to stop what you're doing right now and text that important message to someone you love? (laughs) Or just send them this podcast. Remember, it's Creative Commons licensed. You can share it wherever you like, so long as you don't change it or sell it, totally free. Remember, though, we're only able to do this if enough of you out there listening and enjoying the show decide to donate. If you like this week's story, consider helping us out by going to www.travelcast.org and clicking one of our several donation options. We greatly appreciate it. Alrighty, next on the agenda round two of the 2010 Travelcast People's Choice Awards. A couple weeks ago, we told you about round one and asked you to drop by our discussion forums linked off our website to nominate your five favorite stories, Drabbles, and episode artworks. We tallied all that up, took the top five with the most nominations from each category, and voila, we have our finalists. In this next and final round, lasting the next two weeks, it's your responsibility as Drabble citizens to hit up our forums and vote. The finalists are, for best episode art, Adam Doyle for episode 193, Scales. Gerald Dye for episode 170, Mongoose. Gerald Dye for episode 186, Garcane; Bill Hallier for episode 191, Primary Pollinator. And Lizanna Hurd for episode 188, Store of the Worlds. You'll find those images together for your consideration by the poll in our forums. For Best Drabble, there were a couple two- and three-way ties, so we actually have eight going into round two. They are... Monkeys by Chris Monroe, episode 170. The Work That Must Be Done by Nathan Lee, episode 166. Zuzu's Bell by Mer Lafferty, episode 192. Menage a Trois by Liz Pennies, episode 195. Break Up by J. Allen Pierce, episode 150. Dear Occupant, another Nathan Lee, episode 158. The Miner by Travis Scott Greer, episode 164, and Packets by Rish Outfield, episode 178. Quick synopsis of those again, conveniently in the voting thread. And lastly, the big one, the People's Choice Best Story of 2010. A couple more ties in the nomination round here, giving us seven finalists. And they are Chris First for The Last Great Clown Hunt, episode 148, Tim Pratt for Morris and the Machine, episode 150. Will McIntosh for The Fantasy Jumper, episode 174. Sarah Manette and Elizabeth Bear for Mongoose, episode 170 and 171. Nicole Kimberling for Primary Pollinator, episode 191. L.J. Dally for The Second Conquest of Earth, episode 155. And Leah Whiteley for Go Beep, episode 173. And there you have it. Who will hold the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory this year? Get the voting at the Drabblecast discussion forums to decide. Alrighty, moving on to our final order of business. This week's 100-character story winner, a valentine twabble. From the always-twisted mind of forum member Nevermore66, called 24-Hour Mart, here it is. I scan his purchase, a bouquet, and a spade. Necrophiles need love too, he says. They just have to dig down deep for it. (laughs) So wrong, I know. Love it. Try writing one yourself. Post it in the Twabble section of our forums. You might be next week's winner. Alrighty, folks, that's our show. Special thanks to this week's episode artist, Matt Wasiella, for the really fantastic pneumatic tube cover art. Matt's an educational illustrator living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with his lovely wife, Carly, two small dogs, one average-sized cat, and one enormous-sized tortoise. People can find him and more of his paintings at mattwasiella.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of Associate Editor Matthew Bay, a piano player not strapped to a sheep, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that white actually makes the first move. Mm -hmm. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts, "Last round!" An hour ago, this place was loaded. A noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when spoke.